Acts chapter 8. I want to look back just a little bit before we go to chapter 9. In the life of Philip and this eunuch that we saw last time, there's a baptism. They came up out of the water. It says there in verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went away rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And the reason that that is important as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 9 is because of what we saw back in chapter 1. And so as we turn our attention to that outline that we had there in the 8th verse of chapter 1, it says this, But you, speaking of those who are in Christ, shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so as I said, when we began our study here in the book of Acts, this is an outline for the entire book. And so now you can see it. We've been through chapters 1 through 7. The gospel is being preached in Jerusalem in those chapters. Almost exclusively is the gospel preached in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. It's this picture of the church's early start. It's the picture of Pentecost. It's these sermons that Peter preaches. Thousands come to faith. And then the gospel spreads out into Judea. And in chapter 8, we actually saw that. And so we see these four different men who take the gospel a little bit further than beyond Jerusalem. So they go first to the hills of Judea, which would have been directly around Jerusalem. You can see them when you're in Jerusalem. You can look to the Judean hills. And so if you look to the north, you kind of look up towards Mount Scopus. If you look to the south, you're looking down towards Bethlehem. Uh, If you really look at the horizon, you can see the top of Mount Carmel to the north. And so there at Carmel and south of Carmel is Samaria. And so we saw last time the the Holy Spirit has begun to work in those areas. And as you leave chapter 8, the gospel is making its way up along the coast to Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast about... Uh, halfway between uh, Jaffa, modern-day Jaffa, and the border of modern-day Israel up near Haifa. And so about 50 miles up the coast, the gospel has kind of made its way to Caesarea, and we'll pick up the story there uh, in in the next chapter. But in chapter 9, we take this pause, and that pause is, is the conversion of Saul, And it will be that the rest of the chapters, chapters 10 through 28, are going to be focused on the Apostle Paul, who is going to find Jesus now on the road to Damascus. Saul, remember, is like no other person in all of of the Bible. He is unique. Uh, He is largely responsible, if not completely responsible, for how we as Christians today actually relate to God through the major doctrines of the faith. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. I don't believe that Saul had any idea that as he's traveling on that road to Damascus that he would actually meet Jesus. I believe that as he traveled on that road to Damascus, what he thought he was going to do was to go do God's will by actually killing Christians, persecuting them, imprisoning them, bringing them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, very much in the same way that Jesus had been persecuted. And Damascus, when you look at a map today, is about 175 miles north of modern-day Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself, the Temple Mount. It's not a great distance. Uh, You can travel in in a car a few hours. You can get to Damascus. But as you traveled north during that day and time, it would have been a multi-day journey. And so Saul, we're going to pick up a story here in verse 1, has been at the stoning of Stephen. Remember where he's come from. He likely feels victorious. 
You can almost see him with a spreadsheet. <laughs> Stephen, gone. And you can probably figure out that Saul is after all the apostles. He's after anyone that would have been prominent in, in spreading this heresy as far as he's concerned. Because to the Jews, this man was a traitor. Jesus was a traitor. He, he was a Jew who, who left the faith and is now espousing, uh, in essence, doing away with the law. And so we pick up the journey here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9 and our first half of the series and the conversion of Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the way you have hunted us down on our various roads. Lord, while we were breathing threats and murders, maybe we were destroying our lives with drugs. Perhaps we were in relationships, maybe in business enterprises, God. Perhaps we were just intellectuals in a search for some humanistic way to figure out how all of this fits together without you. But we were on our own Damascus roads. And it is there that you found us. And Lord, many of us, like Saul, kicked against the goads. And we fought you tooth and nail. Some of us came easily. But many of us fought you. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient. And we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us by the power of your spirit through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, and then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue or the synagogues of Damascus. Now, it's interesting because when you think of modern-day Syria, you think of a Muslim nation, an Islamic country. Matter of fact, a radical Islamic country. But at that day and time, Syria was a very different province. And Syria was probably outside of what we would call Israel today, or the region of, Trans region of Transjordan, outside of that area. Uh, when you got up into Syria, that was one of the most Jewish places on the face of the earth. Probably 30, 40 synagogues were in that particular region. A and as those synagogues grew, obviously the Jewish faith grew. And so as the as Saul is now journeying towards Damascus, he's heading towards the center uh, of all things Jewish outside of Jerusalem itself. And in fact, the oldest copy of the Torah that is in existence today in the world is in fact the Aleppo Codex from Syria. It is the oldest copy of the first five books of Moses that we have. It is somewhat incomplete. In fact, all of us terrorism that's been done by ISIS has actually destroyed many of the synagogues, ancient synagogues that still exist in Syria today. And so Paul is going to a place to where he feels pretty safe, or Saul. He, he believes he's going to have uh, a, a sympathetic ear when he gets there. And so he goes on to say, so that if he found any who were of the way... Now, bear in mind, we call ourselves Christians, amen? Uh, during that day and time, they were not known as Christians yet, which means simply little Christs. They were known primarily as disciples. They were known as people of the way. But they were not yet known as Christians. <clears throat> there weren't enough of them for that to really be a name that would mean much. And so being known as people of the way was the, was the way that was not the Jewish way. They were the other way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God puts out an arrest warrant for Saul of Tarsus. Saul thinks he's going to arrest people who are of the way when in fact it is going to be God who's going to arrest Saul. Eli, can we turn my volume down a little bit? If I can hear myself that loud, it must be really loud out there for you. 
Thank you. The whole of Acts chapter 9 really is this conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus. And as you read these first few verses, it is really important for us in a New Testament age, in the age of grace, to understand exactly how important the Apostle Paul actually becomes. As he's converted, as Saul is converted to Paul on this road to Damascus, this is an experience um, that when we look at it, it's absolutely staggering. Paul is unique. He's one of those men, when you think about it, nobody could have been more unique than him. Because in fact, he is actually suited perfectly to also minister to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. We think about him because he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, a real Jew if there ever was one. But he was also thoroughly acquainted with Greek culture because he was from Tarsus. And so he's, he's not from the Jerusalem area. He's from a very Greek area, and so he's familiar with the Greeks. He's also, and we're going to find out in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, he's actually a citizen of Rome. So he fully understands, fully knows Roman culture. So he knows Greek culture, he knows Roman culture, he knows Jewish culture. Furthermore, we're going to find out in chapter 18 that he's actually trained in the skill. He's a tent maker. He knows how to fabricate portable dwelling places, which would have been a very good skill to have at that time. And so this man that we have a tendency to think of almost exclusively up to this point in a very Jewish context is actually being prepared by God to do exactly what God's calling him to do. But he's going to do it in a uniquely Hebrew way. He's going to have a knowledge base that no one else on the earth would really have at that time. And so when we look at the impact of Paul, unbelievable impact. When you look at your Bible, when you pick up specifically your New Testament, if you look at it by total number of books, Paul is responsible for almost 32% of the entire New Testament. When you think of it in that context, if you were to actually include the book of Hebrews, which is not in that figure, it's even higher because we're not positive that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews may have been, may have even been a woman, Priscilla, that authored that book. But just give him the ones that we know about. So he writes a third, basically, of of what we call the New Testament. And when you think of that, he is responsible for our understanding of every single major doctrine of the Christian faith. If you take the Pauline writings out of the New Testament you would be missing over half of the doctrinal positions that we hold as believers because they are explained by the Apostle Paul and in most cases, more than half, they are exclusively explained by the Apostle Paul and multiple times in many cases. Chief among them would be the doctrine of justification by faith. And the grace of God that comes from that. That is exclusively Pauline. So this conversion experience means a whole bunch to you and I. Because if it it is true what we know about the New Testament, when we read our Bibles, very specifically the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the reason that we know what we know about being a Christian, though Jesus talks to us about believing on his name, all of the rest of the things that that implicates were basically taught to us by the Apostle Paul. So this meeting on the road to Damascus with Saul of Tarsus and the Lord Jesus is immensely important. And in fact, it was so important that if you go back about 500 years, we'll celebrate actually the 500th uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which began in 1517. Most of you may have heard uh, of that event as Martin Luther, um, who is trained classically as, as a Catholic priest in essence, he's a monk, uh, as he begins to mull over the official teachings of the Catholic Church, Uh, There were seven major sacraments of the Catholic Church. Those seven sacraments were supposed to be uh, correlated to the Bible. And as he began to research very specifically the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, he has this epiphany. 
And he, he realized that man is justified by nothing but God's grace. And so he comes up with what are known as the five solas, or, or the five things that stand alone. And those five things that stand alone are super important to us because they are Christ alone, and they are grace alone, they are God's word alone, they are the glory of God alone, faith alone, grace alone. They are the things that comprise the Christian faith that we now hold to. And so as Martin Luther mulls over the writings of the Apostle Paul, he comes to this incredible conclusion that you're not actually saved by keeping the sacraments of the Catholic Church, that baptism can save no one, that it's not okay to go to a priest and pay him to absolve you of sin. It's called paying an indulgence. And at that day and time, one could go to the local priest, and let's say you murdered somebody, uh, you could simply add a new wing onto the local monastery and be absolved of that sin. You could literally pay to have your sins espunged. That all comes from the Apostle Paul. As Martin Luther read the book of Romans, he came to the conclusion that there had to be a break away from Catholicism. Interesting as he nailed his 95 thesis on the castle church door at Wittenberg, Germany, starting the Reformation as, as we call it. He, he lists all these grievances. He had no idea that in essence he, he would be responsible for birthing Protestant Christianity. But in fact he did. And, and so great was that change in his life from reading the writings of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit worked in Paul's life and as Paul writes all of the pastoral epistles, as he writes the incredible books that we call the book of Romans and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, as he authors these books, he basically sets up for us to no longer be religious but to be in a relationship with God. And that's exactly what happens to him on the road to Damascus. And so as Martin Luther is finally taken before uh, a da'it, which is a, a council, it was called by the then 24-year-old king uh, of Germany, King Charles V. Uh, and he was actually, at that time, would have been the emperor of all Europe as well. And he convenes this, this conclave of bishops and He's been excommunicated now by Pope Leo, and, and so he is on trial religiously. He's facing 210 men who are diametrically opposed to what the Apostle Paul teaches. These men have laid hold of what Augustine taught, and they've taught that for 1,000 years. And all of a sudden here in 1517, the New Testament comes alive to a group of people. And at that time, to Luther's surprise, he, he thinks that, you know, he's going to be facing a couple of people, and here's these 206 political leaders and religious figures. And I'm talking dukes and margraves and electors, and, and in that are archbishops and bishops and abbots and ambassadors, and there's even papal nuncios in there. So people directly from the Vatican have come to make sure that this crazy guy, Martin Luther, who read the book of Romans and actually believed it, that they were going to set him straight. And so now facing those 206 men, the final day of his trial, he was actually, all of his writings, everything that Luther had written were piled on a table in front of these 206 men, and Luther is standing behind the books, and they're on the opposite side of it, and they say, we want you to recant that you wrote these books, and he says, I can't. And he began to explain to them, I've been touched by the grace of God. I believe that justification is by faith alone through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, in Scripture alone. That Scripture was the book of Romans. You see, Paul didn't know that that would happen. And it would take 50 
1,500 years for that to occur. But as he stands there, one of the great religious speeches of all time, he begins to speak the speech first in Latin because he's talking to a Latin conclave, and then he repeats exactly the same speech word for word in German. But he says, here I stand. I can do not otherwise. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of Scripture, the Bible, Scripture alone, or by the clear arguments of you that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves. Boy, howdy. That's why what we stand on is the Word of God. We don't stand on commentaries. We don't stand on the writings of other men. We don't stand on the writings of John Calvin or Jacob Arminius or even Luther himself. We stand on the Holy Scriptures. He said, I cannot withdraw, for I am subject to the Scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive of the Word of God, and it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I can do not otherwise, so help me God. So convinced was this one man that what mattered is what God had said through the Apostle Paul, basically, almost exclusively in Luther's case. So how important was he? Uh, You and I basically know what we know about God's character, his nature, the way he works, and all of the great doctrines of faith because of this guy whose conversion experience we're about to read. Unbelievably important. And so when people say, well, I'm not really interested in the words of Paul. Our current president is in that group. He believes that the words of Jesus... He's in, he's in a group of people, and we call them Jesus-only people. It's basically, they love the words in red. By the way, I love the words in red. But the Apostle Paul is the one who told us about salvation by grace and through faith. The Apostle Paul is the one that told us about our sins being made justified by faith. The Apostle Paul is the one who said, this is how you ought to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is how you ought to conduct yourselves when you're with the rest of the body. It is, in fact, Saul of Tarsus who would write all of those things. And so before you dismiss Paul as being outdated, you might want to realize that for most of us, we know what we know about being saved because of him. Tremendously important figure, the most important figure, I believe, outside of Jesus in the entire Bible. The next great event we'll see in Acts chapter 10 as he becomes the apostle to the Gentile, but that work is going to continue. And so pick up back in verse 1 now in the account of this transformation. And then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples, went to the high priest and he asked for letters from, from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone who were on the way, uh, whether men or women, he might bring them to bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And so it's clear his intent. He wants to imprison. He wants to, if possible, even kill. Threats and murders. He, he wants to destroy the church while it's in its infancy. And when he journeyed, and as he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you happen to have a red letter Bible, you'll you'll find those words in red. The reason being, this this is an appearance of the Lord Jesus in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And then he, that he being Saul of Tarsus, who are you, Lord? I think maybe already he's getting the the general idea. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. Notice that when the people of God are persecuted, it is in fact Jesus himself that feels the sting. We're God's kids. 
And I can tell you as a parent, anything you do to my children, you're doing to me. Now, I may not feel whatever you do to them personally, but I can tell you that you have stirred my ire in harming my children. That's the way parents are, right? We have been birthed into existence by Christ himself. When he said it is finished, it's done, when he paid the price, we became part of his family. And he takes the persecution of us very seriously. And that's why you can leave that ultimate justice in the hands of God because God's not missing any of it. He sees when his kids are being persecuted. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad's an interesting thing. Uh, it was used back in that day and time generally to keep uh, uh, an animal from kicking you. And so around the back of the legs, they would hang a strap. That strap very often would be filled with bits of nail or pottery, uh, sometimes shards of glass. Uh, it, it could have all kinds of things in it. If you were really poor, you might even pick up a piece of cactus and hang it back there. But as long as the animal was being good, the goads didn't matter. But if you started to buck and kick and kind of get a little disorderly, then the goads caused you a great deal of pain. They were there to control you. And so in this case, Saul of Tarsus has been hemmed in by the goads of grace. They're keeping him constrained. And, and the Lord is at work in his life already, and he doesn't even know it. And he begins to kick against those goads. And it's painful for him. Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm coming after you. I, I love you. I, I want to be your master. I want to be your Lord. And so he, trembling, verse 6 says, and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is a transformation. This is a man who's surrendering to the grace of God. And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. It's another time when the Lord speaks directly into someone's life, and it's very, very, very personal. It's a beautiful picture of how God deals with each of us. You know, very often we'll say things like, well, the Lord spoke to me. Now, when you say that to an unbeliever, they immediately start looking for people that have a coat that can take you somewhere and help you protect yourself, you know. But the fact of the matter is, God does speak into our lives, and he does it through all kinds of different ways. And very often that is quite personal. When the Lord speaks to me, normally it's in time when I'm just waiting on him. And I will hear the voice of the Lord. Now, is it audible? No. But I know his voice. And God is speaking. And it's very personal. And sometimes he'll say, Jeff, Jeff, what are you doing? Well, Lord... I thought I was doing what you wanted me to Well, that's not me. You need to stop that. Okay. You don't want to kick against the goads when God is trying to speak to you. Because if you get going a direction that you can't stop yourself, it's not going to be good. The Lord knows what to do. And so he puts restraints on us. They don't see anybody. And then Saul arose from the ground, and oh, when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days there without sight and neither ate nor did he drink. He's on a fast. And oh, by the way, he's completely blind. He's pursuing the Christians. He, he, he thinks he's, you know, he's going to be the, the, the way, in essence, that the way is stopped. When in fact he's going to be the way that the way is put forth. It's interesting how God gets into our, our little worlds that we think we have all controlled so well. And he stirs things up. 
and he changes our calendars and puts appointments in there that we don't expect. Now, most of us now, because a vast majority of us have smartphones, most of us keep a little calendar on our smartphone, amen? You know, some of us have, you know, here in the church, we use, you know, Office 365, and we have, you know, Outlook databases and all those management tools, and you look on there, and my phone actually goes off. And it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be someplace. It tells me what to do, which I don't like all that much. But my phone goes off and it gives me a reminder that I'm supposed to do a counseling appointment or whatever. And I'll tell you what, God is really good at interrupting all of my planning. And it's amazing to me how many times the most important things that I do throughout the day are not on that stupid smartphone. It'll be, I'm walking down the hall and somebody came in, it's their first time ever visiting here and they'll want to talk and you get into some conversation with them and there's something going on in their life and the Lord has sent you specifically to minister to that person at that point in time and they're not even from here. Often they're from other states, other countries. So I look at my phone, I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like, oh, can you change that appointment? And strangely enough, yeah, actually they're running late. They're going to be here an hour from now. Hmm. Divine appointment. Sometimes people will ask, you know, why would they want to persecute the Christians in Damascus? That's a long ways away when you're walking or taking a mule. We have to remember that this is a direct threat to Judaism. And so every Jew in the world was threatened by Christianity, by these believers in Christ who were called the people of the way. And so Saul gets all the proper letters. He wants to be able to go into every synagogue. Hey, you got any of these crazy Christians in here? You have any of those people? Because remember, the church at this time is almost exclusively Jewish, right? Most of the believers in the entire world at this time are either directly Jewish or they're at least part or, or have a Jewish background. And so this is where they're going to go. Be a pretty easy way to find them out. If you'd have stopped Paul on that road and asked him a few questions, I think you would have got some pretty amazing answers. Uh, I'm not sure what he would have said, but if you'd asked him, I think he said, you know, Jesus of Nazareth is dead. He, he's crucified. Come on, get over this Messiah complex. He wasn't believing that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. You expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah from the great prophet Isaiah? Do you expect me to believe that? Now, one of the things that's so interesting about the Apostle Paul is he most often quotes the prophet Isaiah when he quotes an Old Testament uh, book. So he knew the writings of Isaiah very, very well. It's interesting also that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most common scroll that's found in its entirety is the scroll of Isaiah. There are over 200 of them. So he was a big deal. According to our law, he might have said, anybody who, hung, who was hung on a tree, remember Deuteronomy chapter 21 said, anyone hung on a tree was cursed. Why would you follow a Messiah that was hung on a tree? He's cursed. Why would God take a false prophet and make him into a Messiah? Are you kidding me? You see, from his perspective, you see, sometimes we get on Saul's case. But from Saul's perspective, he was doing the work of the Lord. He actually believed that he was doing what God wanted him to do. And when people believe that they're doing what God wants them to do, they'll do some pretty crazy things. Kai and I were sitting and watching this, this whole thing yesterday on History Channel or Discovery or one of those, but it was on the Church of Scientology. It was freaking me out. I mean, what those people would do, hold the visions of the church whose, whose job is to go around and make people's lives miserable who leave the church. 
making up false narratives, spying on them, setting up cameras across the street, filming their every movement, sending news teams to stick a camera in their face and in their windows. Somebody that leaves the church, they, they put out false stories that they're child molesters and all this insane stuff, all in the name of Lord Zeta. They believe it. It's because the enemy is crafty in his wiles, Amen. Convinces people that what they believe, though it's false, convinces them that what they're doing is the right thing. In spite of his great intellect, in spite of his great learning, Saul of Tarsus was spiritually blind. There are a lot of people in our world today that are very, very, very intelligent, but they are spiritually blind. When you talk to someone who's a secular humanist, They will make tremendous arguments for why there is no God if they happen to also be an atheist. And they'll explain why there's a naturalistic reason for everything. They may have a couple of PhDs after their name, but they're spiritually blind. And until the spirit is made alive by by an appearance of the Lord Jesus in their life, whatever way is necessary for them, in this case... Saul met Jesus on this road, and and Jesus speaks to him. But he was about to see the light. And so as he travels on that road, a multi-day journey, he's nearing his destination. And he has an encounter. And by the way, this encounter is the necessary part of him being an apostle. Now, it's not implicitly said that he sees Jesus here, but he obviously is spoken to by the Lord Jesus personally. And all of a sudden, Saul finds himself face to face on the ground saying, hearing from Jesus, I I am Jesus whom whom you're persecuting. Saul, look, you're not persecuting just a church. You're persecuting me. You're persecuting me, Saul. You need to come to terms with me. The Lord had a special work for him to do. And though he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, He's going to now get a lesson in in what it means to to get out of that place of religion and into that place of relationship. It's one of the reasons I believe the writings of, of Paul are so important to us as Christians because if anyone knew what it was like to escape religion and have a relationship with Jesus, it was Saul. Because he may have been the most religious person on the face of the earth at that time. Say maybe the high priest, I don't know. But he was pretty zealous. And so he has that relationship about to be completely overturned that he has with religion, and he's going to actually have a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we see Saul pick himself up off the ground, and he's now blind. You, You see, until the Lord speaks into your life, you're blind. People very often will say, well, you know, I've been talking to this person over and over and over and over again. The problem isn't what you're saying. It's the fact that they're blind. I need to pray that the blinders would come off, and that's exactly what happens to Saul. They're not hearing it because spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The value of them is determined by the Spirit of God. And until someone is willing to have the Spirit of God speak into their life, then you're speaking a foreign language to them. That's why very often you, you'll, you'll share what you believe is an impassioned plea for someone to come to faith in Christ and you do all the right things. It's like Jesus loves you and Jesus died for you. And it's a free gift and it comes to you by faith and it gives you grace and God's going to give you mercy and you say all the right things to somebody. But if they're blinded by pride... They're blinded by intellect. They're blinded by arrogance. They're blinded by the things of this world. They're blind. That message doesn't go very far. Doesn't mean that you should quit preaching it, by the way. Doesn't mean that you should quit living it. But it means that what you're dealing with is spiritual blindness. You need to pray that people's eyes will be open to the truth of the gospel. Whatever God's got to do to do that. Pray that they would be sighted because Saul is now literally blind as well. 
He's going to Jerusalem in a huff. He is prideful and arrogant, and he's going to come stumbling into Damascus in total humility. You see, because God is actually opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Amen? So when people pridefully come and say, well, I'm too smart to become a Christian. I've actually had people say that to me. I'm too smart to become a Christian. I will usually say something like, that's not a sign of intelligence. That's a sign that you're blind. You you see, because the Spirit of God reveals to people God's plan. Saul went to arrest Christians, and he ended up being arrested himself by Christ. Think about it. He's, he's marching all, and he's like, I'm going to go get some. And all of a sudden, he's the one that's being led by the hand. He's leading nobody by the hand. He began the trip determined to wipe out the message of Christ, and he ends up taking the message of Christ to the world. That's an appointment with God. That's a non-calendared event in our world. That's God saying, I'm interrupting your schedule. You thought you were going one place. And the reason this is so important for us is it gives us reason to never give up on people. Because I'm pretty sure that most of the folks in Jerusalem who were of the way, who were disciples, who were believers, are thinking, I hope he gets run over by a camel. That's what they were thinking. And the whole while, God's saying, no, I have a plan for his life. Don't pray that. Pray that the blinders come off and he gets saved. I think that very often we give up on people way before God has said, stop praying for them. Keep on praying. You you never know when that Damascus Road experience is coming for anybody. Incredible personal transformation. So Saul meets the Lord Jesus. And as he meets the Lord Jesus, the the scales begin to come off of his eyes. And he begins to see for the first time. You see, for us, because we know the Lord, the vast majority of us in here are believers. We're people of the way as well. Those scales have come off of our eyes already. We actually are fully sighted. We can now see the things that God speaks to us by the word. And so when we hear things that are in tune with the spirit of God, we instantaneously understand them as truth. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness. Those are the two bookends of the work that the Holy Spirit does in most people's lives. And so... Oh, that's wrong. That's right. That's the work of the Spirit. You see, Saul's only on the one side right now until he has this conversion experience. He meets the Lord Jesus, and what that does is the same thing it did to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord, and he ends up face down, saying, Woe is me, I'm undone. Pick up with me now in verse 10 as this transformation gets driven home. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he says to him, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at a house of Judas for the one called Saul of Tarsus. You see, not only does God find us, but he sends other people to help with the details. And probably most of us that have walked with the Lord for any length of period of time have not only had the Damascus Road experience, but we've had the street called straight experience too. Where we're not quite sure how this whole Christian thing works out. And along comes the Ananias in our lives. Along comes the Judas who took us in and said, look, you can hang out with me for a few days. Because you are an M-E-S-S mess. For behold, he is praying. Saul knows something's up. 
And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And so the Lord sets up the whole situation in Saul and Ananias. Anybody in here had one of those experiences where God's speaking to one person and is at the same time speaking to somebody else, the other part of the equation, and you come together? That's so weird. God told me that too. I can't believe we both heard the same thing. God's been doing that a long time. And God continues to do that. We call that confirmation. So very often, my bride, my precious wife is used to bring confirmation. Yeah, the Lord was speaking that to me. I heard the same things. And you know what? When you haven't talked about something and God sends the same message to two different people, it kind of is a different kind of information, isn't it? It's generally not consequence. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. In other words, they're saying, uh, well, why don't we just kill him? Because we're not so sure he should stay alive. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And basically he's saying, look, this is, this is mission impossible here. It's, it's an are you kidding me moment. You want me to go minister to this guy called Saul, whom we know came here to try and kill all of us off? Yes. Why? Because it will bring the Lord, Lord glory. Because if God can work in Saul of Tarsus, then God can work in anybody's life. If God can take someone who is not exactly on the road to Christendom, if God can take someone who's almost diametrically opposed to everything that Christ stands for at this point in time, who's intellectually proud, who's lifted up with their own condition and their own station in life, who believes they're on a mission from God already, and transform that kind of person... It should give all of us hope. Amen? And notice how this part of the chapter winds down, down through verse 19. But the Lord said to him, that's a nice way of saying, um, no, that's not how it's going to go. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. This is the first mention of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles to kings and the children of Israel. Check that out. You know, sometimes we leave it almost exclusively that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet Jesus himself said, no, strangely enough, he's also going to minister to his own people. And I believe one of the chief ways he's going to do that is actually during the tribulation. Because one of the things I think ultimately will drive the Jewish people to Messiah is everything that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. Because all those Bibles that you now own, they're going to be sitting around without any owners. And Bibles that you've handed out to people that don't know Jesus. And the Antichrist comes on the scene, and he's demanding that he be worshipped, and they're going, uh, we got warned about this guy. And so the Apostle Paul will actually have an impact, I believe, in the last days as well. For I will show him many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. And then Ananias went on his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, I love that. Can you imagine how hard that was for Ananias? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Can you imagine what that sounded like to Saul? Are you kidding me? I came here to kill you. And you're calling me brother? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has come. And he sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. 
And he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. I'm going to bring the worship team back up for a closing song. But this man, Ananias, was also a devout Jew. And it's important how the Lord begins to sort out the details and all the feelings that people have. You know, the Lord actually cares about the way you feel. Now, he may not validate the feelings that you have. He he may not uh, cause all of those things to always work out the way you want. But Ananias was probably scared of Saul. And Saul was probably scared of Ananias. And I'm pretty sure they weren't feeling too good about the whole meeting thing. There may have been a little bit of tension in the room. But when you add Jesus to the mix, Jesus can put the most unlikely bedfellows in the same place and cause them to see eye to eye so that they call one another brother. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does for us and to us. You know, as as Saul is prayed for, as Saul is, the hands are laid on him, as that, that touch happens, you have to wonder. I wonder what Saul was expecting. And all of a sudden he could see. I wonder what Saul was expecting. And all of a sudden what he hears is brother Saul. You see, because our expectations are generally what we think about ourselves. But from God's perspective, he's doing a work that's way beyond you and way beyond me. And so Saul is now a brother. Saul is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul's about to begin a journey that still affects you and I even tonight. As we read through the incredible books that he authored. And we understand that we've been saved by grace and through faith. As we realize that what we know about the way we're supposed to live our lives came from him. This is a man who was trying to wipe Christianity out. So if you're ever tempted to believe that God can't use you because of what you used to be, you need to look no further than Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. Because if ever there was a 180, which is what the word repent means, it means to turn around and go the opposite direction. If ever there was true repentance, it was Saul. Because he was going one way, and he ended up going exactly the opposite direction. He was trying to do one thing, ended up doing exactly the opposite thing. He, he was headed for hellish behavior, and he ends up in heavenly living. And so, if you ever think God can't use you, remember that he could use Saul of Tarsus and make him the Apostle Paul. Amen? Would you stand?